0: So this is a conversation with writer Salim Haddad, he is the author of the novel Guapa and the director of the short film Marco, which is now available on YouTube. We spoke about both Guapa and Marco as well as his contribution to the science fiction anthology Palestine Plus 100. We also spoke about his connection to Fernando Pessoa's The Book of Disquiet while living in Pessoa's city, Lisbon. We spoke about identity and his relationship to languages, the circumstances around his move to Lisbon from London his struggle with his own queer identity, and our complicated relationship to what we call home. Salim also asked me about my passion for James Baldwin, which I was happy to answer. Quick disclaimer, our conversation on Marco contains spoilers, so I'd urge you all to first watch it on YouTube. It's around 20 minutes long, and I promise you that you'll enjoy it. Another disclaimer is that the Pessoa essay that Salim wrote contains mention of suicide, so please take your mindset into consideration when reading it. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Fire These Times and on Instagram at the Fire These Times. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon or on BuyMeCoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeCoffee.com has both options. Thank you for your time.
1: So I'm Salim Haddad. I'm a writer. I uh, live in Lisbon at the moment, but I was born in Kuwait in 1983 uh, to a Palestinian Lebanese father and an Iraqi German mother.
0: One thing that I want us to start with is uh, your short film, Marco, because it was recently released on YouTube. Uh, and everything we talk about here, uh, I, will ma- I will link it in the show notes and in the, the, the blog post on the website as usual. So this is the synopsis. Omar lives a lonely life in London. He's been in the city for over a decade and spends his days working and ignoring his mother's phone calls. One evening, he reaches for his phone and invites over a young man that catches his eye, a Spanish sex worker called Marco. But as their night together progresses, Omar gets much more than he paid for, a story about alienation and the search for intimacy in modern day London, as well as a meditation on the pain of loss and exile. Marco is also a universal story of that most simple and intangible of desires, the need for human connection and the subtle radical change it can bring. So I watched the film uh, a couple of times uh, this week, I was really, really moved by it. I w- I'm gonna let, uh, ask you if that's okay to talk us through a bit, uh, the um, the process that, yeah, the process that went through your head essentially of like, how did you think of Marco? What did it remind you other? real life stories maybe parallels or um emotions because it's it's a very it's a one one a, a, a poet uh Zena who I'll have on the show next next month as well mm. described the mo- the whole movie as a poem. And so can you speak a bit about the backstory of Marco if that's okay?
1: Um well I mean that's that's fantastic to hear uh someone describe it as a poem. Um I uh, I I never really thought that I would get into film or I would ever make a film. Um, but I was approached by a producer who had read Guapa and he wanted to collaborate on on something and, um, he, yeah, I said I would consider it. And then a few weeks later, he had been reading one of my essays and he picked up on just one small anecdote in the essay, which was about a Syrian refugee in Beirut who was escorting to make money. And he said, this could make a very good short film. Uh, Mm. And around the same time, I was living in London at the time. And around the same time, I remember I was having um, dinner with a friend of mine in uh, Whitechapel. And we were coming out of the restaurant and this homeless man came up and started talking to me and he was speaking in English. But immediately I knew from his uh, accent that he was most likely from the Middle East. And I had a I had a moment of hesitation where I said, should I ask him if he's from the Middle East and, and sort of break, build that bridge or or not? And I decided to do it. So I asked him in Arabic. Do you speak Arabic? And he was because I don't look, uh, you know, Middle Eastern. He, I think he was very surprised. And we started talking for for a while. And he told me his story and that he was staying in, in the mosque and Whitechapel. And his story was pretty much. Like the what ended up being uh, the story of Marco, uh, other than the escorting uh, element, and um, I didn't know what to do at the time because I, I I felt this this odd connection with him because of because of the shared language that we had, and and I thought okay well I can try and help you in some way and I and I went to the ATM machine I took out you know just a small bit of cash and I gave it to him and then I could tell that he was almost disappointed um and it was this strange moment where i think he was looking for something different than what i had provided for him and i think that led to a bit of a uh not like an existential <laughs> crisis but it led me to question what the last 10 years that i had been li- living in london had turned me into and i started to think how much would i be willing to open my life and my door to this to this stranger uh, and I think that combined with with the previous one sentence from from an earlier essay I had written came together to um, to make the short film.
0: You mentioned language. Um, <laughs> so one one of the the cues. Uh, I mean, the main cue, obviously, the the linguistic cue in the movie is when he says Barcelona instead of instead mm. of how people from uh, Barcelona would say, it, which is like Barcelona. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 one of those things where I, I feel it felt like it's more node, like for Arabic speakers, it would take them maybe like a second before everyone else to get what's going on here, which is what, uh, what happened with me. My partner, uh, speaks Arabic, but, uh, she, she didn't, she didn't know about this, uh, Barcelona, Barcelona thing. So it, it just took me a second. It's like it a, a light bulb, <laughs> like, you know, it just, it was this moment where I realized, oh, well, okay, now I'm, I, I get what's going on here. <sighs> uh, you yourself, um, like me and i'll expand on this after but like you have a complicated relationship with languages uh one um as i said like which which is fairly familiar to me and i'm I'm referring here to the um a bbc arabic interview that you gave a few years ago during which the host essentially asks you why didn't you write guapa in arabic and Mm -hmm. uh you you answered um uh very honestly very truthfully like uh, that it wasn't really a choice like you just saw this as uh because the sort of answers uh, and the way you express is that like the sort of answers that you were looking for growing up uh you couldn't find them in arabic at the time this in some ways um uh, i would say that it's changed a bit since then like there, there's definitely way more resources these days and i feel like people who are going through difficulties or who have any form of identity crisis uh in our region hopefully at least if that's not too optimistic that they, they would have Today, more resources than the, than uh, what was the case a decade or even two decades ago. But I'm I'm curious if we can talk a bit about like the guilt you know that this then generates. Consider this as me just projecting because like I'm not gonna speak on your behalf. This is something that <laughs> <laughs> I still feel uh, to certain extents uh, quite frequently. There's always this pressure, obviously, to represent. Like you're representing the Arab world, you're representing in the the Middle East and there's this authenticity uh, question, and then there's survivor's guilt, and then there's so many of these different yeah. emotions at the same time. But so my question to you is, like, how do you navigate these tensions of representation, uh, in our case, like, being Arab, being Arabic speaking, being from the Arab world or Arab majority world, whichever words you want to use? Well, I think,
1: I mean, I don't know, I it's it's a constant uh it's a constant battle and i think i i regularly go back and forth with myself about this and um i mean first from a from a personal perspective around what i feel about the fact that i i primarily write in english um and that increasingly my world is uh you know surrounded by english and mm-hmm. less and less by arabic is on the one hand i feel um resentful i feel resentful at the fact that i feel like I had, I, at the time, I had to gravitate towards English to discover myself and explore all these aspects of myself that I couldn't find in, exactly like you're saying at the time, this highly uh, centralized, um, let's say, well of resources in Arabic. Now the situation has changed, and that's, and that's great. Um, but at the time that I was growing up, the, the, the resources that we had to in Arabic, that we had access to in Arabic were controlled by the state or by the school system, and they were highly censored. So I feel a lot of resentment because I feel like I was exiled from my own language at a very young age, and I had to find my way in this new uh, foreign language. And and there's, and there's actually, I have no connection to English. I didn't um, even visit an English-speaking country until I went to university when I was uh, 17 years old. Um, But I also feel guilty and frustrated with myself as well, because I sometimes think perhaps I should stop and actively focus on, you know, rediscovering uh, and getting stronger in Arabic or being a better writer in Arabic. Um, I have a friend who is um, who's a brilliant writer, but for 15 years, she refuses to publish her writing because she can only write in English. And Mm -hmm. she feels a deep shame about the fact that she struggles to write in Arabic. So she's dedicated herself to translation instead. Um, and, and for me, I, I don't want that, you know, I mean, writing is hard enough as it is. <laughs> um, so I think, let me just try and do what I can in the language that I feel I'm, I'm now living with. Uh, I don't know if any of what I've said resonates with, with what you're, what you're thinking about as
0: well. No, it is, it does, it does. Um, so, okay. I don't think I've mentioned this before, but you know, now, now's, uh, as good a time, as good a time as any, but I mean, I grew up in Lebanon. I grew up in a household, so I grew up with my mom primarily and with my grandparents. My grandparents only spoke Arabic, but my mm. mom spoke mainly French, mm. and uh, French à la libanaise, as they say, like you know, mixed with mm. Arabic, and it's just mixed. Everything is just mixed uh, to the point where I don't, I don't actually know what my native language is. Yeah. Uh, but the um, the the point in the story here that I think uh, some people will relate to is that there there was actually a taboo about everything arabic in my, my household so it's not that uh we didn't speak arabic as i said we would speak arabic mixed with french and uh, I, I had arabic books from school because in school we we although the uh, it was a private education so it was mainly in french and then at aub it was mainly in english but uh during school there was also the arabic books like uh, history civics and so on geography and so on and obviously arabic itself so Mm -hmm. it's not the presence of arabic that was taboo but it was a sort of the way i have since tried to understand it because it also built into resentment for me i stopped taking arabic when i was 16 and i started taking spanish because my family is also partly argentinian Mm. and it was this very odd mixture of being in an obviously arabic uh, majority area even where i lived and the country itself obviously but having this kind of tension and not really knowing why I fit in this, I, I can't roll my R's. It's a very Frenchy thing, as they say in was in, uh, my friends anyway, say in Lebanon, which uh, uh, makes me stand out as in, in the sense of when I speak Arabic, it's very obvious where I come from. In a sense, mm. my my mm. background uh, precedes me in a sense. Mm. And this is something that I only later understood after even confronting my mom on this, that for her Arabic. And actually, I can quote someone else who says said the same thing in a very, very different context. Uh, Hassan Twaini, the famed journalist and publisher and whatever, he was interviewed in one of those uh, short films that I had seen. Um, and he, he was asked, like, why are we, by the, the, the guy who was interviewing him, like, why are we speaking in French? And this, you know, he's the dean of Lebanese journalism. He writes in Arabic and in French, but mainly in Arabic. So mm. why are we speaking in French? And he tells, he answers him that, for me, French is the language of uh, escape or he I think he used something along the lines of it's what I use to describe things because it's it's uh, uh, I forgot the details, but some, uh, something along those lines, whereas mm. Arabic is the language of politics and it's the language of uh, I go uh, to work, I do journalism, I write in Arabic and I describe what's going on around me. And obviously, in the context of the civil war, what's going on around me is not very pretty. Mm. And so this this was the context that my mom also grew up in. she, she was born in 60s, so 75, 1990 she was you know between 15 and 30 essentially. And for her, Arabic took this dimension of being associated with pain, with suffering, where there were there are lots of horrors in, in my family background. So it became this weird thing where I had I was wrestling with Arabic. On the one hand, whenever I was with other, sell like people who identified as Arabs so or Syrians mainly and Palestinians, especially uh, those were my 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 circles, if you want, and still are. Mm. Uh, my Arabness kind of just enters more, com- more calmly, mainly because they kind of got used to me, like there's something odd about this guy. We just got used that, you know, he can't hold his r's. There's some French in the background, you know, all of that. Yeah. And So it became, in a way, that uh, within these circles, it's accepted. But on on a representational level, that creates a sort of uh, weird... um, uh, Well, I guess the only way to describe this, a kind of an identity crisis. Because on the one hand, you're put in a position as a journalist, as a writer, as all of these um, positions. Whether you want it or not, at some point, you're sort of representing a wider world a wider region during the protests yeah. in lebanon when i'm interviewed i'm asked about the protests and so there's that responsibility that if i misrepresent something that can might have consequences on the ground mm. in terms of media attention and so on so i mean i'm rambling a bit but at, at the heart the the segue between these two really is is a, a between the identity crisis with language and um what i what the the dominant emotion that I started feeling when I watched Marco and when I reread Guapa last year is a sense of malaise. Does that, Mm. does that, um, does the, okay, I'll just ask it in this way. Does the sense of malaise resonate?
1: It does. Yeah, it does. And it's funny because I, I don't think I had heard anyone describe my work like that. Uh, but I think that it does, it does resonate. I mean, I think there's there is a lot of sadness in 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 the stuff that I write and mm. and that's because I am sad. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm sad that I'm far from my family. I'm sad that, you know, my friends are, are flung across the world. I'm sad that I've been living in foreign cities for the last fifteen years. Uh, you know, I'm sad that I can't live with my lover openly in, mm. in my in, in the region and not feel protected by, by the state you know, I'm sad that we're having this conversation in English. So there's, there's lots Mm -hmm. of sadness and there's also a lot of tiredness as well. Like I'm just tired. I'm tired of, of, of the conflicts that are going on and the brutality that we've, that we've been exposed to and that we continue to, to be exposed to. Uh, And I think, and I think maybe that, that malaise is, is part of that. And I think, you know, when, and Omar as, as, as a character in Marco, I think really encapsulates that very strongly where for him, every question that Marco asks him becomes so loaded. Like even when Marco asks him, where in Lebanon are you from? For Omar, that triggers this very loaded question. As you know, you know, it is a very loaded question to ask someone where in Lebanon are you from. And it's just, I think that's a signifier of some of the, the heaviness that I think we, we carry with it within us because it wouldn't, it wouldn't, ma- you know, if you if you were from from the UK and someone asks you where in the UK are you from, there isn't that heaviness that you get when someone asks you where in Lebanon are you from, um, or even if in my case you're you're originally Palestinian and then you have that added layer of mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> really not belonging.
0: I remember um, I was asked, uh, "Where are you from, Lebanon?" So where are you from in Lebanon? I'm from Mount Lebanon, and the person uh, that I was talking to. Uh, is a palestinian who grew up in lebanon palestinian refugee in lebanon and it took a while for us to kind of get to know one another to for her to trust me let's put it that way Mm. i won't get too much into the details but essentially you know someone from mount lebanon i roll my r's which to some ears can sound israeli and (laughs) you know it's it's a number of very very weird things where i I said my when i meant by when i also uh, want to talk about malaise um, Samir Osir, the, the Lebanese slash Palestinian slash Syrian journalist whose um, assassination uh, 15th year commemoration of his assassination is coming up on the 2nd of June uh, and here I'll just say that I'm going to interview uh, his friend Ziad Majid and I'll release that um, interview on the 2nd of June hopefully he popularized the term of uh, the Arab Malaise, le Malaise Arab, he wrote it mm-hmm. in French at the time uh, him himself, actually, I should say, he he wrote in both Arabic and and in French as well. So I mean, I, I wish I could had the could have the opportunity of talking to him about this, but you know, as we mentioned, yeah. part of the grief and the heaviness of coming from where we are is that sometimes that's not possible. But the idea of there being a malaise, essentially in the Arab world is is common. It's not uh, from nowhere, obviously, that I I had this. Image, if you want mm-hmm. or this feeling, anyway, while reading uh, Guapa and and when watching Marco, but what I liked about both Guapa and and Marco really uh, is that in both cases, especially in Guapa, uh, there is a location uh, which is Guapa in, in the in the novel where um, it's sort of a safe space to a certain mm-hmm. extent, where mm-hmm. people can go there and they can be who they are with all of all of what that entails, you know, all of the contradictions, all of the heavy burdens, all of the identity crisis and all of that. Mm. And very, very oddly, um, one of those weird coincidences just before I had, I was, so I was rereading Guapa last year, Mm. just before, um, a week before that I was in Lebanon and there was this Syrian worker uh, at, uh the, at at our at our home who was originally from Sweden. i noticed it from his accent I sp- then i started speaking to him at first he was like initially reluctant to to mm-hmm. to say much uh as you know and i'm guessing hoping anyway that most or, or many of the listeners would know uh, being syrian in lebanon is not the easiest thing to be Uh, To put it very lightly, so he was initially reluctant to say much, so he was just, you know, being very polite, uh, addressing me, uh, you know, with the equivalent of sir, essentially in English. After a while, I kind of slipped in the fact that um, I'm very anti-Assad. There was a a flag in in my house that I made, in my room, that I made sure was visible from where he was, that he kind of felt that uh, there's something going on here that's not just this random other Lebanese that I need to talk to him as I would other Lebanese mm. uh, and so on. And that's when he, he really he opened up. Mm. And the weird thing about um, uh, Guapa, it's I mean, it's very different. It's not the same thing. But it also reminded me in the whole Barcelona, Barcelona thing And Marco is that this was the cue. So in my case, yeah. it was the, either the flag uh, which was in the room at the time or the fact that I, I had to tell him something. This was the cue that don't worry here. It, this is different. Like you're, you're in a space right now. That's different. And as soon as I said this, I could feel like his entire body post posture kind of relaxing and he was able to uh, be himself at least more so than he would have done otherwise. Mm. So the assumption that, uh, Omar has in, in the movie that he assumed immediately that Marco is either Lebanese or Syrian for me, uh, and i you can uh, i'll ask you to talk to expand on this a bit but i was wondering if there was something about a lebanese and a syrian specifically those two nationalities which uh, maybe in some other context that could be like a lebanese and a palestinian as well i would suppose mm-hmm. in, in some mm-hmm. in some context uh the i i mean there there
1: was and there wasn't so there were two um primarily it was also and this is this is where you know the the practicalities of of filming kind of dictate the story, yeah. uh, we were also driven by the casting as well. So we we wanted to make sure that Omar was played by the most appropriate person. Mm-hmm. And then we would adapt the nationality to a certain degree to the to the character. Um, so initially, Omar was written actually as an Egyptian character. Um, and then when Zed uh, auditioned and he was just the perfect fit for the role... Um, but he's Lebanese. So we just said, well, why don't we make the character Lebanese? And I think that this opened this really interesting dynamic that we hadn't really seen before uh, that you're talking about between Lebanese and uh, between Lebanon and Syria. There are, there are lots of layers to it that suddenly developed uh, that we hadn't really foreseen and hadn't written into the script. But then once that happened and once we cast uh, a Lebanese actor, we were able to... Make use of that opportunity, uh. So it was serendipitous in a way, you know. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's funny. I was I was thinking about what you were saying about the, about safe spaces and uh, and I think that, I mean for me. Guapa the the bar guapa in the novel, um, is I mean in 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 some ways it is it is a safe space but I think, uh, I mean I find I find safe space. A bit vague, right? And I yeah, think yeah. trying to think about what what we mean exactly by a safe space in that context, um, and I guess I guess it's 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 a space that allows for a certain type of of intimacy that in other cases we would have to push aside, hmm. um, and I think that guapa allows for that space, uh, that type of intimacy, a type of lowering of boundaries or this vulnerability, and I think again in in Marco, you you find the two characters exploring that and developing that space, uh, as well. That's of this intimacy, and that's done through language. And then the pronunciation of Barcelona, Barcelona, <laughs> kind of opens this this portal, right, for the two of them. Yes. Um. That they that they both go down until, of course, one of them can't can't anymore, and and has yeah. to leave that that uh, that intimacy. Um that space of intimacy.
0: Yeah. In some ways, the the dynamics of power kind of reassert themselves at some point and uh, not always, of course, but it's like wh- the, the uh, potential of what could be possible anyway, during those moments of either awkwardness or kind of this linguistic hue of the person suddenly realizing that you come from the same place, so to speak, or any mm. of those things that kind of just break away from the quote unquote, normal way of doing things, I, I find really interesting. And in, uh, I mean, one of the things that um, I've seen this said many, many times uh, about Guapa, especially uh, coming from, from uh, folks from the region is that this reminded them of their city. And mm. uh, I've, I think I've heard people compared to Cairo, I, I've heard Amman uh definitely heard uh beirut uh and for me while reading guapa it's like you know this is one of those pubs in hamra or in jamaise basically yeah Uh, the the physicality of it for me has always been very interesting because uh i i mean i i obviously agree with you as well like you know safe space might it might be a limited term especially in this context I, i guess one way i could uh, think of places like this. is like it's it might be temporarily safe in the sense, mm. or re- relatively maybe. That's another way of of putting it. It allows a bit more, as you said, uh, vulnerability. Yeah, a bit more vulnerability, exactly. And we, I mean, Marco. Uh, I I don't know the name of. I forgot the name of the actor, but the way he portrayed him uh, as as vulnerable is is very very raw. It's very. Mm. Uh, it shows that he it's almost like the, the character was waiting for the, the um, permission to kind of relax a tiny bit because like he, mm. he was obviously stressed out. He's he's from an extreme. He's in, in an extremely vulnerable position in society in, in London at the time mm. uh, at the time. Well, in the movie, uh, I'll segue here to to the, the Pessoa essay. Wait, before
1: uh, we go into that on on the on yeah on marco and and that and that uh uh that the the actor is played by a lebanese guy actually and he was very uh for for all of the reasons we outlined he was very nervous about playing a syrian um
0: character and a syrian
1: refugee uh because he he didn't really have that uh that life experience and wasn't certain that he could do it and felt that he was maybe... And I think we were all struggling with that, right? Because yes. there's, you know, the the image of the refugee is, is so huge and, you know, in Europe especially, and but and in Lebanon as well. But, I mean, this was set in Europe. And so we, we, we were really, we, we were trying to be as sensitive as possible and subvert a lot of these power dynamics that we could see being played out in media representations. You know, we, we didn't want this idea that, this that marco was going to suffer on behalf of the viewer or on behalf of omar uh and that's why the ending ended in the way that it did that marco sort of came out on top of it uh in a way like we just, we you know we wanted we wanted that vulnerability and that um uh yeah i guess that vulnerability without actually the suffering um you know f- for him to have to sort of carry everyone's suffering on yeah, his shoulders
0: yeah. no i mean yeah that was uh very very apparent. Like it's something that uh, again, hopefully most people would have watched it by by it. they they listen to this. It's something. that I mean, the actor basically did a, did a good job on this. So good. good That's on great. I'll, that. I'll let him know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it so I mean the okay. Let's put let's let's segue in, in this way. I'm very bad at segueing. I just I'll just tell you from now. It's
1: uh, fine. I mean, you
0: know, uh, segues can be clunky. That's good. That's part of life now. <laughs> <laughs> indeed um another, so this is london and we mentioned that uh well london marco is set in london when we mm. mentioned that guapa uh, could be set in a uh, you know pretty much any of the major cities uh, in the region that uh like uh, cairo amman beirut and so on um mm. uh, but the pessoa essay is about a very specific city in the city that you're in right now mm. which is lisbon um I, w- I will let you sort of just uh, introduce introduce us a bit to the essay. I reread it just before we had this conversation again. And I've been um, reading, actually listening to a, uh audio rendition of, of The Book of Disquiet, which I will okay. also link um, uh, in the description because it's, it's very well done. Um, how, the, how are you finding that book? Oof, uh, it's... Um, it's at times uh, whimsical, at times heavy, at times, um, I don't know, it's one of, in the same way you described it, it's one of those books that it doesn't make sense to sit down and just read it, like yeah. in one sitting or even in a few sitting, it's just, I, I don't see the point of it, basically, the some of the paragraphs, are, uh, some of the um, sections uh, are so different from one another that i don't know how to just sit down and read it as though it's linear i was reading uh let's say i don't know chapter 12 or 11 or there's one where he mentions um uh, his aunt i think uh playing solitaire a lot and i think that's like 12 chapter 12 It's in the beginning and it, it was a mood, you know, like I was listening to this and uh, probably the way the, the, the person who was reading it, the way she was reading it also probably uh, contributed to that feeling. But like, and probably, the, <laughs> I should say, probably the fact that I was listening to this while sitting on my own at, in the middle of a forest, that probably also <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> contributed to that sense of solitaire, of obviously of, of uh, yeah. solitary um, isolation or at least being with one's own let's say at being or being alone i would i should say Mm. so yeah i mean it it was um it still is i haven't finished it yet it's one of those books that you feel you you have and then you will just revisit uh exactly yeah um you know forever uh, basically Mm. so can you talk a bit about how you actually came to the book and the relationship between the book and lisbon and your relationship with lisbon because it's a series of coincidences on and on some level and then it's kind of like uh things fell into place in a certain pla in a certain way yeah so
1: i i mean i think it it started really with um the, the need to get out of london and that was very much um linked to the publication of guapa actually mm. um, and it's funny because this you know this was my first novel and it should have been this really as, as one would imagine the publication of a first novel would be this like very celebratory occasion and people around me were, were celebrating. But I think I had a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of trauma and a lot of fear and a lot of shame. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not, uh, until Guapa came out, I was not an openly gay person. I worked in aid work and, and so I was traveling to locations where my sexuality had to be a secret. Mm. Um, and for a long time i resisted writing queer a uh, queer themed novel but guapa you know couldn't but be a queer novel um in the end uh, and so I, I was filled with a lot of shame about the fact that the book was coming out i was filled with a lot of fear uh, and this this growing sense of panic that that um uh, of be, of being in the public eye of feeling very vulnerable by having written this, this story that was very close to, to my, not my experiences, but my emotional experiences. Um, and I think that was only magnified as I was doing promotion for the book. And I was increasingly feeling both, uh, weighted down by this idea of, of representing something or speaking on behalf of, of a certain group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, as well as and this goes back to the idea of of language and what language you choose to write in, but I was also existing and speaking and talking about the book within a specific type of context and this context of uh you know growing right wing fascism uh, islamophobia um, the instrument instrumentalization of Arab and Muslim sexuality um, and and those were very heavy things, and, and and a number of things happened in the year that Guapa came out. For example, Orlando, uh, the Orlando shootings happened, and the way the media ran with that was also very difficult um, to deal with and respond to and speak on. Um, and then Brexit happened, and the election of Trump happened. That all happened in the year that Guapa came out. Um. So I just felt this need, uh, of increasingly uh, that I needed to just get out of this, um, stifled, quote unquote, Western discourse. Uh, Western is a very broad generalization, but I think it's this dominant discourse that I just wanted to get out of, and uh, the possibility of Lisbon just fell into my lap through friends suggesting the city, and then Pessoa came up, uh, from from there and, um and i think you know as i was dealing with this anxiety for a long period of time i tried everything i you know i tried talk therapy acupuncture meditation self medication yoga ecstasy dance therapy reflexology i went on a 10 day silent meditation retreat i tried everything <laughs> uh, and and i think you know what 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 really and pessoa ended up being one of the one of what i call like the 3 p's that really helped me kind of come to terms with this anxiety that I had always been suffering with, but that reached a boiling point, you know, in, in those two years. Um, it was Pessoa and psychoanalysis and, and the idea of playfulness. Those three things, I mm-hmm. think, were what really helped me get, come to terms with, with, with the anxiety that I was feeling. And um, I think Lisbon, Lisbon the city, and Pessoa as a poet and as a writer are so intimately connected and I and I really only started to understand just the very um surface level connections just in my first year um of living in the city and reading the Book of Disquiet while I was living here. Um and, and so that's what compelled me compelled me to to write um to write that essay.
0: So on that essay Uh, as I said, I was rereading it just before we we were having the call, the way certain things sort of felt in place, like, uh, uh, fell into place, sorry. And, uh, so in the sense that, uh, just before, uh, moving to Lisbon, uh, you and your partner had to make the very difficult decision concerning the dog, Mm. uh, which is something I very, very intimately, uh, uh resonate with yeah, yeah. I, I understand this very well i'm very very close to my dogs um and part of my uh isolation actually being not when i when i say i'm i feel like i miss lebanon sometimes what it actually translates into is i just miss being with my dogs <laughs> yeah uh, that, like honestly some <laughs> i i'm <laughs> sorry, i'll just i'll just say, say this as a funny uh, parenthesis but uh i was asked by a journalist uh she did not end up putting this uh in the piece uh, I mean, because it's just not important as important. But she was asked. She, she sorry. She asked me, in the context of COVID nineteen, uh, because my grandfather had passed away just as the pandemic was was being declared. Essentially, so I couldn't go back and that whole thing. So she asked me mm. about it, and I told her, uh, of course, like it's very difficult. I can't be with my grandmother. I can't be with my family and so on and so forth. And then she just asked me, uh, like, do you miss Lebanon? And I tell her, listen, uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's a very, very, very complicated uh, emotion. It depends when you ask me at which time of the day you're asking me Mm. and (laughs) what my mood is on the spot and so on. But uh, it also depends on like, uh, so it depends on like where in Lebanon are you referring to? If you're referring to the house and the garden and my dogs, then yes, I obviously miss that. Yeah. If you're referring to the wider chaos and everything, well, you know, sometimes I, I have the energy for it and sometimes i don't have the energy for it obviously Mm. uh
1: yeah sorry yeah no 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 uh yeah i mean i i totally uh i totally get that and i and i relate to it as well i i haven't been uh living in the middle east for long periods of time it's been a long time since i've been in the middle east for long enough for it to really get under my skin Mm. um but i also have that relationship with my parents dog um not like i had with my own dog uh but you know um yeah yeah it's, it's, <laughs> there's, it's a lightness <laughs> there's a likeness to dogs
0: there's a likeness to dogs it's um i i i say that uh, well i said this to my to my therapist recently it's uh I can't Skype with them, so it doesn't <laughs> I, I can Skype with my friends. I can Skype with my mom and my grandma and my grandmother and, and so on. It's not the same. Obviously, I still prefer to have them in front of me. But at least there is this um, way of sort of compensating. Well, with dogs, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't seem to be working anyway. It, it doesn't translate over Skype, <laughs> no, <it doesn't. laughs> the, the relationship. Yeah, no, it's true
1: yeah and and um and the our dog um i mean we we had made the decision to move to Lisbon, and it was a week before I was in Tunis actually when when we got the news um that that he had bone cancer, and it was very advanced, and they said you know that the best thing you can do is is to just um you know uh mm-hmm. put him to sleep. Mm-hmm and uh, i don't know what the correct word is for that is it put him uh, put down
0: to put, put him still? down i think yeah
1: yeah to put him down and um and so we did that i mean just a week before we we left and it was it was just a very it was a really intense time because we had we had put the dog down we were packing you know 10 years of our life in in london uh, and you know traveling we were traveling by boat in the middle of a hurricane and the night before so we had you know, the dog had died and then I won this literary award and I had to like go and accept the award <laughs> and give a and give and it was the same time that Mashru Alayla, the concert in Egypt happened. Do you remember that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. yeah, it was when the, they had the concert in Egypt and they um and then the Sisi regime cracked down on uh you know, basically activists under the guise of the rainbow flag or whatever it was mm-hmm. um so it was it was that all of that was happening as well and i was trying to write about it for for um a newspaper and so there was just a lot of things happening and then we arrive in in portugal and we're driving through and it had, it was one of the worst forest fires that the country had seen in in a long time so we were just driving through these like you know charred black land and like smoke that was billowing up out it was it felt like the end of the world uh and that was our experience of moving to to lisbon <laughs> um but you know thankfully it's you know touch wood. it's 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 been good since then <laughs>
0: <laughs> besides that part everything was fine <laughs> yes well, yeah. But yeah that's that's quite intense honestly um so yeah, I want. I was gonna say something. Cause I I always try as much as I can to insert James Baldwin whenever I can. But yeah. your your um relationship, I guess we can call it with uh Pessoa, in some ways, obviously reminded me with how Baldwin sort of uh how I so I dis I really dis- I really discovered James Baldwin in the context of that documentary that made the round some years ago. Um, what is it called? I am not your Negro. The, the documentary by Raul Peck. And me and my partner, we then took a class in London um, at the, I will find the name and link it, but it's called the Black Cultural Archive Center or something like that. I'll find the name and link it. And it was, it's, it's a, it was a course, entire course on James Baldwin. It was called something like The Amazing James Baldwin. Okay. And it was on a weekly basis. We had some readings to do and so on. And then we would go and talk about it and, and etc and it just blew my like his writings blew my mind really like it was not there i there's nothing since before or since that i can really say has impacted me in the same way probably also having to do with the fact that uh you can listen to him talk almost as well as he can write which is very very um unusual to say the yeah. least. Yeah, he's very powerful in the way he talks. He moves a lot. He's he's charismatic, I guess, is the word uh, folks can 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 use to describe him. But for me, Baldwin is also the he's uh, attached to a specific location, and not even the location where he is from. So for me, he's attached to London because that's where I discovered him. And then as uh, by chance, now I live where I currently live uh next to geneva is actually not that far away from where he passed uh passed away in france in saint paul de vence hmm. uh it's like 2 3 hours drive or something yeah and i'm supposed to uh, now i i don't really know honestly what's going to happen with covid 19 but i was supposed to attend a workshop a three or four days workshop at in his house uh at the end of june i think it was so now i don't really know what's going to happen we'll see but so, yeah, the point of this rambling is just to say that it's it's quite incredible to have um, an author usually or an author's books, I guess, uh, in a certain way that you can physically take with you. So the book of the quiet is this very physical thing that you can take with you from place to place. Mm. This is... Um, the fire next time is the book that uh I have with me and I've had with me since london and it's you know traveled from london to adam to beirut beirut to Geneva and I still read it from time to time and can um, you
1: tell me what it is about the fire next time that really you know if if you can like you know begin to maybe articulate what it might be
0: yeah well the obviously the name of the podcast is the the fire uh the, i almost forgot the name of my podcast <laughs> <laughs> the the fire these times mm-hmm. and it's a reference to that, to that book. Mm. It's, um, when he was talking about the fire next time, I think if I remember correctly, it's it's a metaphor from the Bible. He grew up as a uh, boy preacher, I guess it's called, because his father was a pastor uh, and so on. So he, he had a lot of biblical uh, lingo, let's say, biblical lexicon in his, in his novels. And uh, the fire next time is supposed to be a, well, in the, in the metaphor that he, the way he was using it is essentially, let's let's simplify and say that if we don't figure things out now, then there will be the fire next time. Let's let's uh, mm. put it that way. And obviously, he was especially talking of um, what we might um, um, uh, euphemistically call race relations in America. Yeah. Um, he expressed very uh, sincerely, and he mentioned it's mentioned in the, in that documentary by Raoul Peck. The guilt that he felt because he was living in Paris when some of the civil rights movement stuff were happening. Uh, the heaviest part in the beginning, like the march to Selma and all of that. I forgot if he was in it or if it was just before he went back or something. I forgot the timeline. So the fire next time is, is, that, is that is that. If we don't figure out how to solve this question, the race question, let's call it. Mm. which for him was not just a matter of racism. And this is what I always found very fascinating about Baldwin. Mm. But it's also about identifying where the fear that is behind racism, the way he describes it, obviously, the fear that drives racism, let's say the hatred of the other, the fear of the other, the fear of the unknown, what uh, Sigmund Bauman uh, basically described later on as like liquid fear. It's a kind of the fear of that is very diffused. It's not um, about any one particular group and actually the the people being scapegoated can change from one day to the other as we know mm-hmm. uh, it can be black in America, it can be black people one day, it can be Mexicans, the others, it can be Arabs, the other, it can be trans folks the, you know, it can yeah. be different groups of people that are already either racialized or scapegoated or whatever. And mm-hmm. so that's that's what the fire next time is about. And the idea of the fire these times is that we are in the fire right now. Yeah. and it is being experienced through different temporalities. So it's experienced through different peoples people have different paces, different um, yeah different ways of experience this one thing that we call the fire as, as it happens a, in a literal pandemic that has since hit Yeah. Uh, but I mean that is the general idea of the fire next time. So it's something that is kind of like a warning. So if I, if I can use a, an image is that you see a tsunami coming. And you can literally see it with your own eyes and everyone mm-hmm. is just playing on the beach. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how I would describe it. That that's what the fire next time is. And this metaphor, the fire is obviously the tsunami. And yeah. I feel like basically the tsunami is at, let's say at least closer to, to the shore. And the, mat- the idea here is that we need to move it. <laughs> we need to, to accelerate the, the pace of deconstruction and understanding these tensions and these dynamics of in the case of this podcast, racism and, and classism and, and sexism and homophobia and transphobia and all of these things. So, yeah, that that was a very long answer. Sorry, but that that's essentially the that's what draws me to Baldwin himself and to that mm. book in particular.
1: Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, other than Giovanni's room, I'm I have not read much Baldwin and I keep meaning to rectify that. But, um, you know, I, I haven't. Honestly, um, one,
0: one way to do so is to watch him talk on YouTube start yeah, with that perhaps. uh he because was he also left was... didn't
1: he like what what i find interesting about him is that he had a very complicated relationship to obviously to the u.s for for mm-hmm. you know for for the obvious reasons and he and he left the u.s for for a number of years but he also had uh, a complicated relationship with the civil rights movement right like yes. he wasn't entirely accepted by from what i from what i know um, and I always found that really interesting because it just, you know, it just makes him uh, a very complicated, um, uh, character, I guess. Um, yes. Or person. He,
0: he talks about in notes of a native son, which is the other uh, book of essays that's excellent. Uh, I keep on confusing which one is dedicated to his nephew. I think that's the fire next time that's dedicated to his nephew, who's also called James, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he mentions in the, um, the notes of a native son that basically on his 19th birthday, there was the, the infamous Harlem riot of, uh, I forgot when it was 1943 or something. Mm. Um, so the thing about Baldwin is that he left with a one way ticket to Paris with barely enough money. Uh, I forgot he, it's like less than a hundred dollars, like 20 or $30. And he left because, and this is his own, uh, I'm paraphrasing him, that he knew that nothing worse can happen to him there that couldn't happen to me here, essentially, mm. so in Paris mm-hmm. here. Mm. And he had a very, as I said, like he, he died in France at the end of the day, and he, he spent almost close to several years anyway in Turkey, and this is part of his life that many people don't know, but there's a whole book yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, I mean... He left because he couldn't handle it as simple as that. And then he went back because he felt that he had a debt uh, that he had to pay. And this goes back to uh, the very Christian uh, uh, language that he uses. He was always he had a complicated relationship with religion. He wasn't uh, fully Christian or fully atheist. Uh, I don't know actually how he would define himself, but he had this complicated relationship and uh, but he described it as he was in, I think, Paris. And he was discover uh, discussing as they call it then the la, la question algerian like the algerian question uh in the context of the war of liberation of algeria obviously and that's when he started realizing that part of the reason why he was more comfortable in paris is that because he was not the n-word in paris that was mm. the algerian and that kind of gave him a sort of a window in his uh of not window but like a space uh, we can go back to safe space because it's not fully safe, but it just gives you this temp- temp- uh, temporary. Reprieve. Yes, a temporary reprieve, exactly. Yeah. So uh, he did go back. He was close to both uh, Medgar Evans and Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King, and that's part of that's the documentary. The documentary is his relationship to these three men, and um, he was both. Um, the way I can describe him is that he was kind of the if you consider. Uh, Malcolm X on one side of the spectrum and Martin Luther King on the other. James Baldwin was sort of in between. Mm -hmm. And he was both comfortable in that position and extremely uncomfortable in that position. The fact that he was openly uh, gay at the time also meant that many people even within the civil rights movement were um, well were homophobic, Uh, like Mm -hmm. like we we shouldn't be be in denial about this. It took a while for that to be uh, to a certain extent uh, solved. But Mm. yeah, I mean, that is the the reason why he left and the reason why he went back. And he always said that he never missed America, but he always missed Harlem, which is Mm. how I would uh, also kind of uh, relate to in a sense with my with my own complicated feelings about back home.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny um, at the moment. I mean, this might change, but the. The epigraph of the book that I'm working on at the moment is a James Baldwin quote that I came across. Um, Do you
0: have it on you?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think it it goes, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I just, yeah, I really love that quote. And maybe also that speaks a bit to the Malays that (laughs) that you mentioned before. Very much so, yeah. The Arab (laughs) Malays.
0: Very much so. So, Baldwin, and I'll just end on, uh, on that note, like Baldwin had a way of talking directly. So there is a interview that I mentioned in, a, in my conversation with Musa Okwonga, uh a few weeks ago, and I'll, I'll, people can find the link on, on the, the show notes of that episode on, on the website, where he's in Amsterdam, and he is talking to that uh, interviewer, a white Dutch uh, journalist, Um, And he was talking to him like he was talking to the entire Western world. So he talks to a person, um, especially I would I would guess when he speaks to to white people uh, in in his particular context, as though he is talking about uh, the entire Western world. So that's 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 the whole fire next time. It's either you figure things out right now Mm -hmm. or we will all pay for it. And he, he was well known for saying that the. Um, I'm going to butcher the code. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but along the lines of the future of the, um, well, he would have used the word Negro in America back then. The future of the black man in America is the future of America. So like mm-hmm. they, these are inseparable paths. These are inseparable questions in a sense. And mm-hmm. so th- that that's what I meant when I said that he, when he talks to someone Uh, He he was telling the Dutch interviewer, for example, that you are making the exact same mistakes that we made in America, as in like the way Mm -hmm. they were treating the recent quote unquote migrants from the former colonies, Suriname Mm -hmm. and and other places. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Dutch interviewer then asked him like, so what um, would you have us do? Or like, what is your advice or something? And then he says something along the lines of like, if I were you, I would study us and not repeat our mistakes or something like that. And he had this, uh, way of talking, which again, um, probably goes back to his childhood as a choir, as a choir boy, there's always, uh, talking in, in metaphors and, uh, uh, biblical language in a sense. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. it is, it is very biblical. His writing is very biblical. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That that ends my lecture on James Baldwin. Uh, but yeah, I mean that, that is, that's why I felt, um, a resonance with your Pessoa essay, because for me, it's like Mm -hmm. at some point, maybe in the near future, I will basically write a, you know, reading James Baldwin in whatever. I'm hoping that when I go to his own house at some point, uh, that that will sort of galvanize or at least motivate me to to write on that front, on that, uh, about that, in a sense.
1: You should, you should. Uh, I mean, I found it very, um, you know, it it took a long time and i think actually i had sent you the essay in an earlier draft that was you yes, know yes. two or three times as long as that what was finally published <laughs> um but it was it was it was just such a uh, it, it felt really good to articulate all of these f- feelings that i had towards a city and towards a book um that you know one would feel but not necessarily take the time to write down and think through mm and explore. And then even in the process of writing that essay, I was able to discover more about Pessoa and understand why I felt so strongly about certain elements of his writing. Um, I think it was, you know, even the process of writing that essay helped me understand, um, why I felt so strongly about, about his work at that particular point in my life. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it, it's also it's it is, because so I had heard of Baldwin before uh, watching the documentary and taking that class and everything. But I was in a particular mindset when I discovered him. And that is relevant. It's not that uh, the power of word is one thing. And obviously the fact that he, he writes so well is is part of it, obviously. But it's also about like what was what I was going through at the time uh, mm. when I discovered him. I had just left Lebanon uh, initially just temporarily to do my masters. And then at some point it became a big question mark. Like, I didn't know if I could go back. If, if I do go back, will I even find a job? Because what I do is badly paid anywhere, let alone in Lebanon. Mm. And all of these questions kind of came into place in a sense. And that's in addition to the, um, uh, my connection to Syria and obviously 2016 was a particularly bad year on that front. Mm. But, that so that's it's in that context that I discovered him, and it's why I uh, ended up building this connection. In a sense that, in another context, I may have you know, I may have enjoyed his writing and felt that powerful and everything. But I have a feeling that it's kind of the combination of all of these factors that is the reason why it uh, stuck in that in that uh, sense. Hmm. Um, before letting you go, if we can talk a bit about uh, Palestine plus one hundred. Mm. it's i had actually written um, a review on it uh, it was published on Mangal media i will again link all of this but the okay I'll, I'll just let you talk a bit about like talk to us a bit about your essay or maybe about the book in general and in your essay more specifically and why you felt the need um to participate in this project and kind of yeah your general reflections let's say on on this book on palestine plus 100 yeah, well, I um, the 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 funny part is that I
1: had already had an idea of something I wanted to explore. Uh, with regards to Palestine, that I was just chatting to um a, a friend of mine who's who's also Palestinian Lebanese, and she's um, an illustrator, and and we were talking about the idea of drawing this, of of you know working on this comic strip. Of, and it was it was almost a comedic take on, you know, what if uh, we all all the Palestinians, we just all suddenly de- decided to live in this simulation that was created by the memories of our grandparents. Because, it, you know, we those of us in the diaspora, we don't have really uh, memories or experiences of, of Palestine. We sort of just live in the Palestine that, that you know, that our grandmothers and grandfathers talked about. Um and and we were spitballing this idea and we're just having fun with it uh and then i was approached by comma press asking if i would be interested in this in writing something and i just thought okay actually i have i have a, an idea that really fits with this and and that's what st- sort of started the uh the short story that was that impulse of a, what if we created a simulation from from this rose-tinted memories, you know, and then what happens with these rose-tinted memories when they start to rot and, um, you know, uh, reality starts to seep in. And I think that, you know, that's, I don't know if it's just a Palestinian thing. I don't think it's just a Palestinian thing because I see it also in the Iraqi side of my family and I see it in the Lebanese side of my family, you know, that we tend to dwell on these past glories um, and... You know, we sort of indulge this fetish for nostalgia to the point where it becomes almost a type of dysphoria. You know, where where we're nostalgic for something that never really existed, uh, and constantly measuring ourselves against this thing that didn't really exist. And I, and so I was kind of interested in exploring it in that way. And I just found science fiction to be a really liberating way to write about Palestine, which is such a, uh, a very difficult and dark uh and and traumatizing thing to to write about science fiction sort of allowed uh opened up this new way of of exploring some of these dark themes um and yeah it, it was it was a great it was a great um, process you know
0: i think he was either the editor or one of the writers of the iraq plus 100 um mm-hmm. uh, book also by Comma press and he had, I think he had said something along the lines of, um, science fiction is difficult to find in the Arab world because the present is overwhelming or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And it's why, I mean, I obviously agree with him. Um, and at the same time, I'm happy to see that there are challenges to that. Um, let's call it state of mind, uh, to grotesquely simplify it, but, I I would be extremely curious, essentially, to see many more of these like Palestine plus one hundred, Iraq plus one hundred. There's Mm. a number like there's the book of Gaza, the book of um, I think Tehran is one of the other cities. I think Mm. Istanbul. so basically the book of major cities. And I think Cairo is one of them, actually. Mm. And I would be very curious to see more of those and to even see if at some point And kind of, this is just like kind of like an open note. Uh, You don't have to respond to this if you don't want. Hmm. But uh, if at some point we can even see the transformation of science, no, not transformation, but if we can even see like fantasy and high fantasy um, books being written and set in the region, because in order to do that, so in order for the, the way I think about it, I'm very like much into the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien world and everything. Mm. Uh, but for that to happen, really, um, I may be wrong on this, but as I think so for that to happen, it had to come from a mind that was allowed to think mm. this long and this deeply. I mean, just the sheer, sheer time and hour and days required to yeah. invent a language and a world and characters and maps and all of these things and then to link them in books. and books. These are things that a college professor at Oxford, which was his case, of course, uh, Tolkien, uh, could do. Not everyone could do it. I'm not diminishing mm. what he actually accomplished and I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of that world, but it's certainly more difficult for uh, a writer from the Middle East, for example. So I would be very curious if we do get to a point one day where let's say, I'm not going to say the Arab Tolkien because I hate when people do that. Yeah, but <laughs> like the equi- a, a, an equivalent world to a Lord of the Rings type world, but obviously very different, uh, kind of set in an imaginary Arab world in the same way that uh, Middle Earth is sort of set in vaguely in the West. If that could actually happen one day. So like on this note, um i will also link the the review to to uh palestine plus 100 and including links for people who want to get it it's a fascinating collection of essays and for those who didn't know because i actually forgot to mention this the plus 100 refers to 100 years since the nakba so since 1948 and yeah that, that's that the is, brief yeah that's the general idea of those plus 100 books so they're plus uh the iraq plus 100 is set in 2103 so 100 years after the the us uk invasion of iraq and so on so anyway i'll end it on this note uh is there anything that um you wanted to say or like i talked for too long or uh you know i forgot to ask or whatever just go for it
1: no i think i mean i think this this we covered a lot of things and it's it's it was really interesting to to chat and to to get thinking about about some of these um about some of these topics uh and you know <laughs> there are no easy answers to a lot of them but that's no. that's why they're <laughs> so interesting right
0: yeah uh thanks a lot for your time Sydney
1: no thank you thanks for having me